don't want the perfect be the enemy of the good. Like, do you get why the correct answer is correct? Yeah. Do you get why the incorrect answer is incorrect? Yeah. If you want to write down a major takeaway, fine. But to do this for every question and for every answer choice for every question is overkill. You're going to exhaust yourself. And the danger is that by the time you've done all this busy work, when there comes a question you really need to put this concentration into, you're not going to have the energy for it. Hello, and welcome to the Seven Sage Podcast. I'm Joe I. Ping, and today I speak with Seven Sager Jimmy, who scored a 173 on his 2015 LSAT. That's right, 2015, when people still shook hands and the LSAT was written with a pencil on paper. Jimmy has been teaching the LSAT since then, and we talk about common advice given to students. We also talk about our favorite thing, sleep. No, not just because we're old, but because it's so important for being effective on the test. Okay, without further ado, I give you Seven Sager, Jimmy. I have Seven Sager, Jimmy here with me. Your handle is Quicksilver on Seven Sager, if I have that right. Jimmy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. So first, let's talk about your LSAT scores. Your high score was the June 2015 LSAT, a 173. And you started with a diagnostic of a 147. So I would love to find out how you studied, how much you studied, what you focused on, and how you improved from a 147 diagnostic to a high score of 173. Yeah, I think my first diagnostic was a 147. And just to be clear, I stayed in the 140s for quite some time. Not a tremendous amount of time, but just so students out there don't get discouraged. I firmly believe that this is something you can study for. It's a set of skills you can acquire. And then, yeah, with time, I eventually got to that 173. I think a big part of it is habits. I'm a big believer in habits. You're in the middle of this exam. You've got 35 minutes per section and it's like you're in a wind tunnel and everything's just moving so quickly. And the more you can sort of cultivate those habits, these best practices to make something that's not always exactly intuitive, become sort of automatic and intuitive, the better. You know, the other thing is, right, I mean, just having superior techniques. I didn't discover Seven Sage until uh, later than I would have liked. I had been through a few other good courses and they were very good, but particularly when it comes to games, I'm not just saying this to be nice, JY, like <laughs> I love your techniques. It was a godsend that I wish, particularly for games, I discovered it sooner, but getting those techniques and then you could know something in your head, but then just practicing it. So it becomes muscle memory. Right. Yeah, for sure. So I see that you also have before the 173, you also have two scores from 2014 in the mid-low 160s. Yeah, I'm actually kind of proud of, actually, as a teacher. I wasn't thrilled about it when it happened because I was shooting for a 170 or higher. My GPA was relatively low. It was, it was pretty low, actually, for getting into a T14 school. It was around mm -hmm. 3.0. So I knew I needed to compensate with a higher LSAT score. Right. So I was always shooting for the 170s, especially when I was about to take that first one. I got to the point where I was scoring my PTs in the 170s. So I, I got that 162, I believe, was the first one. And right. it was a great score, but it wasn't where I was PTing, and it was a letdown. But I'm a big believer in God's delays and not God's denials. And so I just learned from them and worked a lot harder right. and um, thought about what I could do differently. Yeah. I mean, I, I know you and I are outside dinosaurs. This is years ago. Um, <laughs> <laughs> do you recall what happened on that 162 exam? Why the actual test score was so much lower than your prep test scores? I don't know if there's one particular thing, but I, I think there are probably a couple of factors. I think there's just something about being in 
like the real thing. You can, and mm. trust me, I was extremely disciplined about replicating the PT to be just like the day of the test. But there's just something about walking in, you know, this, we're else at dinosaurs, this is preflex, walking into the test center, realizing, oh my God, this is the real thing. So I just wonder if there's just a little bit of that. When I look back, I mean, I was scoring in the high 160s, low 170s. And I think I've even heard you refer to it as, yeah, we want to you know, be in that ballpark, but sometimes you need more of a cushion. And so maybe things were inflated, not in the sense that I didn't get those actual scores, but there's just something about being there in the real thing, the real time. Right. So I wonder if maybe I didn't have enough of a cushion. And if I'm being honest with myself, you know, yeah, a few 171s, but just as many 168s or 167s, you know, does not right. a 170 make for certain. Right. So th that could have been it. But still, the 162 was quite a drop, though. It's not like it was a 167, 168. The one thing I do want to add is that in certain areas, maybe my technique could have been sharper. I mean, in games, for example, I was doing well, but there were times I would get a negative three and there were times I would get a negative five. Right. There were times I would get a negative one. I would rather that have consistently been closer to a negative one or negative two as opposed to varying between a negative two and a negative five. And I think that kind of told me, hey, if that's what's going on, then you're kind of setting yourself to the extent that you can control it. On test day, things can vary, and you might just be at the whim of the test. You know, if they give you a really hard, weird game, then that could throw you off. So there were things I really did need to tighten. So do you recall how long you had already studied? Sure. Probably over a year cumulatively at that okay. point. And then from the 162 to the 173, I see it was another about like nine months or so. Yeah. And that required me waiting a cycle, which is not an right. easy thing for people to do. Right. So ultimately, you did get the 173, which is amazing. Do you remember the breakdown, like what you missed, where? Yeah, not 100%, but I know for certain I got zero wrong on games. <laughs> Great, yeah. And I never thought I would be that person. I thought, okay, maybe one or two wrong. I'd hear about people got zero wrong on games. And I know it's nice because that really frees you up some space to make errors in other sections, but I didn't think that would be me. So I know I got zero wrong on games, but the other two were probably evenly broken down between LR and RC. Okay. But yeah, I do know zero wrong on games in particular because I was surprised and I credit the foolproofing method and the stuff that you've done in Seven Sage with that. I don't think that would have happened otherwise. Nice. Let's talk about the fact that with a 173, you had really good odds of getting into T14. Did you end up applying? And if so, what happened? Yeah. And I do think it's important, right? Because the name of the game is getting into your target school, of course. And again, just as a reminder, my GPA was lackluster for a T14. It was a 3.2, barely, mm -hmm. really a 3.0, depending on what LSAT counts. Oh, LSAC, right. LSAC has to adjust. To yeah, right. right. Like in my case, LSAC actually worked in my favor. It was like just oh. <laughs> around a 3.0. And then they brought me to almost a 3.2. So I was like, oh, thank, nice. thank you. But still, I was at a disadvantage for the T14. In fact, I remember this pre-law advisor looking at my transcript and I was talking to her about getting into a school that wasn't even the top of my list, wasn't even in the T14. And she was just like, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, that's going to be a reach. And she said it sort of casually, broke my heart. Oh. And so I remember being really down that weekend, but I just said, all right, well, I got my workout out for me. Let me do this. But going back to your original question, yeah, it took me from a place where that advisor said that, and she was probably right, but I didn't give up. And the LSAT allowed me to get to a place where schools that weren't even 
probably going to look at me before with my with my lackluster GPA were now offering me scholarships. So, for example, Duke, Berkeley, Georgetown got into each one. I, I would have been lucky just to get in. Not only did I get in, they eventually each one of them gave me close to a full tuition scholarship. Wow. And I'm saying that to make the point that if there's anyone out there, if you don't mind me saying so, like if there's anyone out there that's, I don't want to like oversell these things. I don't, you know, more than anyone, how much care and attention goes into this, but this does give you an opportunity to get into schools that maybe you didn't, it's not easy, but you get that opportunity with, with the hard work. Yeah. So it did open a lot of doors for me that I don't think would have opened otherwise. And, and, and special thanks to you and Seven Sage. Oh, thanks. You're saying you didn't want to oversell the power of the LSAT to open doors. You probably can relate, like, because you rightfully point out that it does require more studying than people realize. You know, you want right. to put in that time. I don't want to make people's expectations crazy, but I do want them to know that it's quite possible. If I didn't do this with the LSAT, there'd be no way. I don't think I'd have those opportunities. I don't think I would have gotten into the T14. They wouldn't have taken my 3.0 GPA and been like, oh, let's take this guy. I needed to show them that uh, something and the LSAT gave me the opportunity to do that. The path wasn't easy, but luckily I had resources like Seven Sage and night and day what the outcome would have been. And that advisor that I referenced before, (laughs) she probably would have been right. Right. You know, for splitters, the LSAT is the chance to get into the door. But you ended up not going to law school. And uh, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that decision was like, considering just, you know, how much work and effort I'm sure sure went into preparing for the LSAT and the applications and all that. Of course. Yeah. And thank you for allowing me to talk about that. I I know it might seem pretty odd, like, oh, he put all this effort in and then he got these great opportunities and scholarship money and he didn't go. So make no mistake, it was a very tough decision. For me specifically, I, I guess it was personal. My father had just passed away that summer. He was my best friend and he always inspired me to do well in school. I don't think I would have done anything without having a father like that. But then it got me thinking about mm-hmm. things. And I think part of it initially was like, okay, well, you know, it's tough to grieve. Do I really want to start law school at this point? So there was that. And I, I was going to start at Berkeley. Mm-hmm. And I literally went to like the, uh, this is embarrassing to give you the details, but so students don't feel so alone out there. I literally went to orientation and was about to start my first week of classes. Then I was just having second thoughts about whether I was ready. I contacted the deans. And they were actually very cool about it. And they gave me a one-year oh, okay. So that's how it started. I don't know. I don't know if anyone decides, oh, I'm going to quit law right. school. So it can be a bit of a process. So I, I, I might have, right? But they were very accommodating. So if anyone's out there who's in a similar experience, don't be shy about reaching out. I can't promise they're going to be as charitable as Berkeley was, but they were very kind. But then, you know, the whole process kind of got me thinking about, you know, is this a lifestyle I want? Is this uh, things I want to do? You know, with my dad passing away, it just kind of got me thinking about the kind of life I want right. and how short life is. And so, you know, this is a decision that I made. It, it was it was a personal one, but I decided that, okay, well, all right, let me not go back the following year. <laughs> Wait, did you ask for another deferral or was that just it? Uh, I'll be, yeah, well, let's be transparent. I did, I did, <laughs> and, they, and they weren't able, they, oh, weren't, they, didn't, they weren't able they to grant it. They didn't give you a two-year so, deferral, okay, okay. <laughs> they didn't give me a two-year deferral. So, and, and I want to be transparent about that too. So, but who knows, maybe if I had asked for it sooner, but it was not an easy decision, but for me, it was the right decision. Now, I can still go. My score is still valid. And there are times when I've wondered, should I have gone or should I go back? And I, I still have that opportunity. But I'll tell you what's appealing to me is I do like 
teaching so much. I love teaching. And I kind of get a two for one in the sense that I get to do something I really enjoy teaching. I enjoy the lifestyle. I enjoy like working with students and helping them problem solve. And at the same time, this is kind of silly, but in some small way, the part of me that wanted to practice law, maybe I can kind of live a little vicariously through my students, right. right? Like I had thought about being a prosecutor, you know, and I had thought about doing public interest work or government service work, or maybe even just working. Like I had a, this you know, consumer protection was something I was very interested in. So I'm not doing that, but you know, maybe I'm in some way kind of helping a student like me who wants to get into a great law school. So that way they have these opportunities and they could do some good work. And you know, if you're not in a public interest, that's okay too. I'm, I'm happy to help you. I think we need good, honest, kind lawyers out there. But if I could play a small role in helping, uh, you mm -hmm. know, these students in, in some ways, I kind of vicariously get to satisfy that need of maybe, going, you know, like uh, that I would have had as a lawyer. Yeah. So when did you get into teaching? Was it during the first year that you deferred or earlier or later? Before, actually. Before? Okay. I had taught a little bit when I was in college. I had taught some test prep for the SAT and ACT. And then I had worked for a number of years and I moved out to a different state and, and a few other things had happened. And I wanted to study for the LSAT. And so it kind of worked out where my full-time job, I ended up being, I actually ended up getting laid off, what happens to us, right? But then like, okay, cool. And I ended up moving. So in some ways it kind of worked. Fortune kind of favored me because I had this time to devote more time for LSAT study. But then having moved and all those other complications, I was looking for temporary work mm -hmm. that would also allow me to study. So I went back to teaching the SAT and ACT. And that was actually quite helpful because it's not the same. I always joke around the LSAT is like the SAT or ACT on steroids. Mm -hmm. But the idea is that like still similar concepts apply and ways of thinking about this apply. So I was kind of teaching at that point. And then on top of it, after my second take, I got a 165, I believe, on my second take, and that qualified me enough to start teaching the LSAT for just some places out there. Not seventh um, age. So not seventh age. No, no, I didn't quite meet your standards, but eventually I got there. Not seventh stage though. But I'm just kidding. We actually don't have any. We don't have tutors. You don't have a. You don't have exactly. a cutoff. No, well, we don't have tutors, so. Well, you don't have official, yeah. Right, we don't have official. Yeah. We don't have any official tutors. But the reason I wanted to do it was because I'm a big believer that if you could teach something that really forces you to learn it, right? Yeah. You could appreciate this more than anyone, JY, like when there's so many abstract concepts here, but because you're, you, when it's like, oh shoot, I gotta explain this to somebody. Right. It really forces you to crystallize it in your mind. And right, so I remember thinking, well, let me try teaching this. So, because one, with a 165, I mm -hmm. could teach at these other places, but two, it would, it would give me a benefit. It would like force me to really crystallize these concepts. Yeah. And really that's what I did. Now, I will tell you at that point, I had blown through every PT that was available at that time, or at least any relatively recent one. So it was just a matter of retaking PTs and doing other things, right. but also teaching. I met with the student once a week and, and taught her, and it forced me to really up my game. Yeah. And in some ways, it's kind of like the benefits of blind review, where if you have to explain something to someone, or if you have to explain something to yourself, it forces you to really think about it. It's especially helpful with these really abstract concepts. So sorry for the long-winded answer, but that's oh, how no. I got into teaching. In some ways, it's kind of selfish because you kind of learn through the teaching because it forces you to be better. Yeah, I totally agree. I say this all the time. You don't have to be so formal about it. Just having to explain something to someone just forces you to mm -hmm. be in a different mindset. It just activates a different part of your brain. I mean, for me, I find that it just makes me think harder. I don't get to be lazy about my thinking.
because there's some social dynamic there where you just have to deliver the explanation to somebody else. But let's talk more about your teaching. So ever since then, and then being 2014, 2015, you've been teaching the LSAT? Yes. Great. So you must have a lot of experience to share. So maybe we can start by talking about what is the most common mistake that you see LSAT students make? So there are a few, and by the way, it's not like we're looking to find these mistakes and point fingers, right? It's it's more like, oh man, I feel for you. I want you to not do this so that way you can get to your score. It's, if anything, it's, you know, empathy and caring and wanting to see it improve so you're not wasting your time. I'd say one of the, you know, one of the biggest ones that comes to mind now is busy work. Hmm. I do notice that a lot of the work people do just doesn't give them a ton of bang for their buck. So for example, I've seen students that are like, oh, I got this question wrong. Let me rewrite everything I can, why the answer choice that I picked was wrong, why all four answer choices are wrong, why the correct one is correct. Don't get me wrong. All those things are valuable. In fact, I think, you know, you talk about the importance of knowing why what's correct is correct and why what's not correct is not correct. Don't get me wrong, but to write it out for every question you've gotten wrong or were the slightest bit uncertain about, I think sometimes can be a lot of overkill. And I have students come to me and blind review is an amazing tool, but people do this a lot with blind review. They'll be like, man, I put in four days with blind review and I still am exhausted. I don't feel like I got much out of it. And I find that they're just doing this overkill. And I say, look, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Like... Do you get why the correct answer is correct? Yeah. Do you get why the incorrect answer is incorrect? Yeah. If you want to write down a major takeaway, fine. But to do this for every question and for every answer choice for every question is overkill. You're going to exhaust yourself. And the danger is that by the time you've done all this busy work, when there comes a question you really need to put this concentration into, you're not going to have the energy for it. Mm -hmm. And students tend to do this a lot in a number of ways. I've seen students say, well, you know, I think I might be flagging too much. And so they'll flag like, you know, for blind review. So instead of blind reviewing, maybe there were like seven questions in a section or five questions in a section that they were reasonably uncertain about. They'll say, oh, well, I'm like 0.03% uncertain about this. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but to make my point, so I'm going to do this one. So they end up, instead of, there were maybe seven questions they should have blind reviewed, mm-hmm. maybe they'll do 15, mm-hmm. you know? And then I've had students that will be like, well, shoot, now I'm doing 15. So I just decided to blind review every question. Mm-hmm. And again, I respect the process, but I worry if it's not the biggest bang for your buck, if it's not sustainable. Right. I've seen that happen a lot right. lately. Okay. So if I understand correctly, the concern here is that Let's say you have a student who is blind reviewing, or maybe even after the blind review, just doing a thorough in-depth analysis or performance on, say, an LR section, and maybe she has like 10 questions that she wants to really get something out of. And you're saying that not all 10 questions are of equal priority, right? So that level of like really in-depth analysis where you're writing out your reasoning for everything, for the stimulus, for the right answer, for the wrong answer is helpful, but also carries the cost and risk of burnout. So if you're doing that for every single question and it becomes unsustainable, Mm -hmm. you're worried that they will then be burning themselves out on potentially the low priority questions. And when they get to the high priority questions, they're just out of steam already. And so that actually cuts against their goals. Yes. Yeah. You said it way better than I ever could. But yeah, the idea is that they're not prioritizing this could happen in many broad ways. If you're taking the LSAT, you tend to be a pretty driven, hardworking person, right. which is 
wonderful. I mean, I'm sure you could relate to this. I can relate to this. I was taught the value of hard work, but I feel like in some ways it can work against us. It's like, oh, I got to do this. I got to do that. And so it's like, I don't want to leave any stone unturned, which I mean, that diligence is an admirable quality. I love it. But I've seen it work against a lot of students because they'll try to do everything under the sun. But then, like you said, you risk burnout. It's not sustainable. And you don't, even if you try to do a lot of things, prioritize your energy for the things that are give you the most bang for your buck up front. That way, if you do run out of energy, you've at least got the stuff that's going to give you the bigger bang for your buck. I'll see students who like, they don't get the results they want up front. These things take time. It's not this linear jump all the time. Then they'll think, okay, what am I doing wrong? Which is cool. I want you to think about what you're doing wrong. Get specific, learn about it. But then they'll think, oh, I got to work harder. I got to do more. Let me go out and get this other book. Let me go out and get this other resource. Let me buy this whole other course. And I I have to confess, as a student, there were times I was tempted. I'm like, oh, let me go out and get this other book. And then I realized, wait a minute, what am I going to do? Read 500 pages of this other book when I've already got this great course and all this stuff. And maybe I just need to fine tune and target my approach. So I think a lot of times students, understandably, they're like, I'm just going to work harder, which I respect. But maybe take a little bit of time and step back for a second and say, wait, let me get specific. Are there areas that I could prioritize? Maybe the resource I'm using is fine and I just need to kind of dig a little bit deeper and get specific. Maybe I don't need to, you know, do 20 questions of blind review. Maybe I can just distill it down to the seven or 10 where I really was uncertain. So again, I just think it comes back to prioritizing rather than trying to drive yourself nuts doing everything under the sun, which I don't think is sustainable. Yeah, I think at a micro level, knowing what to prioritize is something that is heavily stressed in developing a timing strategy, right? Like you want Mm -hmm. to make sure you're spending your time on the questions that you have a reasonably sure chance of getting correct, not the curve breaker questions that even if you dump three minutes into, you're not likely to get it right. So that's like sort of at a micro scale, when the clock is ticking, when you're making your way through a section, an example of why it makes sense to prioritize. And I think it's the same principle applied on a longer time scale to your studies overall, knowing what kind of work to do that will yield the most benefit because, well, on the cost end, it's about the same, right? It takes energy, it takes cost, it takes time, you get tired. But I think also similar to helping students develop like a timing strategy within the section, if you zoom out over the course of their studies for the LSAT, students often have a hard time discriminating between the kinds of activities that will be high yield versus the kinds of activities that you've described as sort of busy work. So I'm wondering, like, how do you go about diagnosing that for your students? And if, you know, students who are listening who maybe don't have the benefit of working with a tutor, what kind of advice do you have for them to figure out, like, how they should better manage their time and efforts? You know, one of the best tools for me as a student and something I still recommend to my students is the seven sage analytics. You create a wonderful tool where once you're done with that test, you kind of create a database of questions that are higher priorities versus low priorities. So LR is a great example. Uh I'll go into the analytics when I'll encourage my students to do this. You know, they'll show me their analytics and we'll go in or when I was a student, I would do this and I'll be like, okay, well, there's about a dozen or so question types in LR, but these are the three or four that JY's analytics tool is prioritizing. This is where I really need to get my bang for my buck. These other questions, yeah, cool. You know, like obviously I'm not going to dismiss them and there are things I need to learn about them. 
but let me prioritize the ones that are coming up red in analytics. So analytics is a great tool. And most of my students are seven sagers, but even if you're not, a lot of the other courses out there have some analytics tools. But again, going back to seven sage, the analytics tool is invaluable. Focus on the stuff that came up as priorities. Yeah, that's a really good way to think about like what conceptual gaps there are in a student's knowledge base, right? And as a way to kind of guide your studies. Maybe let's go back to the first question I asked about common advice that you give students. Aside from, you know, not wasting time on like busy work and stuff, do you find yourself repeating other advice frequently? Sure. This one's kind of related. Skipping or, you know, as I like to say, doing the questions on your order as opposed to the test order. Right. That's something that I say over and over again. And I, I get it. I like, but students don't want to do it. But when they start to do it, they see real benefits. And skipping is a vital list things that I think are, you know, key habits to get into to score 170. I would put skipping right up there because like you were saying, JY, on a micro level, right? We're talking about, okay, study plans. We're going to prioritize what's most important. Okay. Well, when you're in a time section, you want to get the lower hanging fruit first. Your priority becomes the easier questions to get done first. And then the more medium ones, you know, you're, you're sort of like, I'm going to butcher the word, triage. Is that what they say when you're going in, right? You're doing some level of triage where it's just like, okay, let me get the lower hanging fruit first. Let me get the easier ones, the less easy ones. Let me get the medium ones and then get to the harder ones. Because, right, if time's going to run out, I'd rather you get all the easier ones in than otherwise. And students, for a number of reasons, are really not as inclined to skip. And I, I think you might appreciate this. The phrase that I give to students is, skipping is not quitting. I say, like, that should be your mantra. Skipping is not yeah. quitting. Because there's this idea, like I was saying before, the psychology of someone who's studying for the LSAT, you know, like wants to be a lawyer. You're, you have all these admirable qualities. You're hardworking. You're driven. You're not quitters. And we often conflate skipping with quitting entirely. And yeah, is there a chance you won't get back to the entire question? Certainly. If you're going to run out of time, I'd rather you not get back to a question that was giving you a hard time than miss out on questions that were lower hanging fruit. And then on top of it, I would argue that you get to a place that I was in where a good chunk of the time, you're actually able to get back to those questions you skipped. But now you're coming back after having done the lower hanging fruit. So psychologically, you're in a better place. You're more confident. You can think clearly. You've also had some time to let what rattled you get out of your system. And maybe, who knows, maybe your subconscious mind has sort of like figured something out or you'll see a question differently. But one of the biggest things I can say to people is just, it's one of the best things you could do. I, I just say it over and over again. In fact, today I was talking to a student earlier in a session about how one of the big things but I feel like a common denominator between consistently scoring in the mid-160s to breaking that 170 mark is just being disciplined about skipping or prioritizing questions and not feeling like, oh, I've got to do this in the order in which LSAT gives it to me, because you don't. You have to stay within that section, but you can do it on your time frame. Mm -hmm. If you do it on their time frame, as I always say, like, there's so many questions that... <laughs> you know, they're putting before others to try to trip you up. So they can't dictate the order of the questions. They can dictate the section, but you can do it on your order, not theirs. Mm -hmm. And it's much more empowering. Yeah, I totally agree. Let's say you get a student who understands what you're saying theoretically, understands the economics of this, right? That it's about marginally what you can gain for every minute you spend. But that student has a hard time putting this into practice. What do you do with a student 
like that? How do you help them actually put into practice the technique of skipping around? Sure. I do want to say real quick though that it is important to really get the theoretical upfront, but that way you sort of light a fire under them and you say, "Hey, listen, you want to improve right. your score. This yeah. is the way to do it." Oh, for sure. Because I think a lot of people are afraid. You need that push because just like there's this real skepticism people have for a number of reasons. But you're absolutely right. Okay, great. Now we want to do it, but how do I? Right. Little things, right? So seemingly little things, baby steps that can make a big difference. Give them strategies you can act upon. Like for example, if a question is unduly hard. If you're getting significantly more resistance than you might expect for a certain question, then get out of there and try to be attuned to that. So, right, yeah, like okay, question seventeen is going to be hard, but is it really hard for question number seventeen, or is it just as I would expect? If it's unduly hard, then be willing to get out of there, push your comfort zones. And this is a simple thing that I think is interesting. Even just like a lot of times, people know what to do, but they don't do what they know. And it's understandable because you're in the middle of this time section. There's all this pressure. The simple thing of a review sheet can make a big difference. And I realize we think of review sheet with the day of the actual exam. Definitely have a review sheet there. But I got into this like weird strategy where I created a review sheet for every PT. And I know how this might initially sound. Here's the guy that's telling people to do less, and I'm saying create a review sheet for every PT. But just bear with me because it's not like you're creating an entirely new review sheet. We live in the world of Microsoft Word and Google Docs. You can just, you know, create a review sheet on Microsoft Word or Google Docs and then just update it every PT. But the point is, the things I want to remember, right? Like, hey, don't be afraid to skip. Or hey, if you're getting significantly more resistance than you might expect, or a question is unduly challenging than you might expect, push your comfort zone to skip. Sometimes just looking at that, you know, in a few minutes before on a review sheet before you jump into the PT, that can be the little push that you need. So as an overall, anything you know, anyone who's listening out there, if there's something that you're like, gee, I need to do this, but I keep forgetting to do it when I've got a million things to keep track of in the middle of a section. Try this evolving review sheet approach. Sometimes just looking at that as a reminder can help. Even just strategic skipping. By contrast, right, the original thing I just said: if, if you're just getting any resistance, no matter what question type, if it's unduly hard, then skip, right? But the other thing is, okay, well, maybe I can kind of have a template for how to skip. So, for example, in games, one thing that I swear by is local before global. Like that is a form of skipping. You've got、mm -hmm. a very specific category, but for anyone who's out there listening, right? Local questions are the ones that, and Jay, I would say, right? They give you new information. They give you a new clue. They say if they often start with if if Q is in spot three, if R is in group four, right? They give you that new、mm -hmm. piece of information. Obviously, do the first question first, right? But once you've done that typical first question first, prioritize the local. Before the global, that way it gives you something to do. I, I personally think it's effective for a bunch of reasons, but I think part of the reason that and I think you might be getting at this JY when people are afraid to do it is part of it's just like, okay, I'm pushing my comfort zones here. I'm not sure. I, I know I want to skip, but I'm afraid to. They don't really have the how. So if you've got something like sort of a specific category of when to skip, that can help. For me, local versus global is a great example in games in reading comp. If you know that there are certain question types that tend to give you a hard time, for example, 
inference questions or questions that ask you about the author's opinion. This doesn't mean that you don't do them, but maybe you'll deprioritize them. Do some of the questions that are easier for you first. Another example, going into LR, right? Especially using analytics. I say most people that use Seven Sages course and have been looking at analytics, they have a sense of what question types give them a harder time. Oh, maybe, maybe it's necessary assumptions. Maybe it's most strongly supported. Hey, you know, you can say to yourself, I'm going to be prepared to skip or open to skipping more if I get a question type that tends to be harder for me, at least where I am in my studies right now. So if you give yourself that heads up and you're prepared on like certain types of questions to skip, that can be helpful. That, that way you have sort of a how, something practical to do, mm -hmm. and you have a game plan, and that can kind of ease you into it. Be prepared to push your comfort zone. It's not an easy thing to do, but like the more you push your comfort zones, you're going to see results. You're going to realize, oh, okay, this worked out better. Cool. And then you're going to be more inclined to keep doing it. I think the LG strategy is uh, something I started doing recently. This isn't always true, but the questions mm -hmm. that give you an additional rule or additional premise, they on average tend to be a little bit easier than the questions that don't. The reason being that when they give you an additional rule, it just limits the number of possible worlds down versus when they don't. To adopt that as a broad approach to the questions, I think that's good. But I think like in terms of maximizing what you can gain out of the amount of time, out of the limited amount of time you have, you still have to mm -hmm. be very sensitive and attuned to when a question is starting to suck time away from you in an undue manner, right? Like every question deserves at least some amount of time, but I've heard other students say that they'll come up with what they call an exit strategy, mm -hmm. which is, you know, they always remind themselves that this question that I'm on, maybe I'll get this question right, but maybe this is the question that I need to skip. And I need to be aware of that because mm -hmm. otherwise my default state isn't just to be like, oh, I'm spending a lot of time, I should move on. Oh, rather my default state is, and I think this is true for everybody, your default state is just to get sucked in, right? You're just gonna keep working. Like, is it yeah. C, is it no, is maybe it's D, go, let's bring back, uh, go back to the stimulus, you know, <laughs> go back to the answers, go back to the stimulus. And then before you know it, three and a half minutes have gone by, you're still deciding, you know, between C and D. That's the worst situation to be in, a situation where you don't even realize that you're wasting time. So I think a good way to kind of counteract that is to come up with some default exit strategy and just practice. Like it's something that you start to build an awareness of the passage of time. Like you start, like if you're consciously practicing, like I'm just going to try to get out of every question in, you know, a minute or maybe whatever the time may be for you. It's different from, you know, it's different depending on what your goals are and how close or far off from those goals you are. But broadly speaking, the principle is the same, you know, like whatever amount of time you tell yourself is the amount of time you get as default for the first round. If you start consciously practicing, you'll start to cultivate a real sensitivity to that duration of time passing, after which you're going to be like, oh, wait, this is starting to feel weird. Oh, right. It's because I'm, I'm starting to get stuck. I need to move on. So I think that's really helpful as a way to counteract the test writer's strategy of creating a layer of difficulty by ordering questions in a very peculiar way. So yeah, it's hard. It's hard to do, you know, like there's, you have to first understand why you need to do it. And that's the, you know, economic analysis. And then 
after you understand that, you still need to be able to like actually implement it and execute it. And that has a lot to do with just kind of training yourself to be sensitive to the passage of time as your mind is engaged with, you know, all these logic puzzles. So yeah, it's pretty challenging, but definitely a lot of rewards for people who are able to be successful there. You do kind of want to develop sort of a rhythm or an internal clock, if you will. I mean, part of it is, okay, maybe I'll just try to like give myself X amount of time, but then eventually that becomes automatic and you kind of get a sense of it. And it, it is a bit of trial and error, but you want to give yourself the freedom to have that trial and error. And then even the psychology of it, just to go back to that, right? Like if you say to yourself, like, it's like, there's that whole sunk cost thing where it's like, okay, I invested a minute in it. On the one hand, right? Okay, or invested X amount of time into it. Maybe I invested this amount of time. Now, the truth is you and I know that, great, I'm glad you invested this time, but like, you don't want to invest even more time. You don't want to, as I like to say to my students, you don't want to throw good time. What is it? Mm -hmm. through, throw good money after bad. You don't want to throw good time after bad. I hope I'm not butchering it too badly. But right, like, yeah, I invested this time. Does that mean that you should invest more in it? And it's very counterintuitive, but it's really important to push your comfort zones on that. It's going to feel weird. It's going to feel uncomfortable. But so many things where we get better, whether it's lifting weights or just anything, right? Like you grow yeah. through getting uncomfortable. It's how you get better. I think a lot of students, when they're confronting, I mean, it's like there are these obvious situations where some cost is no brainer. Like if you're going to the grocery store and then like halfway there, you realize, oh, actually it's Sunday, grocery store is closed. Nobody would like actually finish the walk to the store, right? Like they would just turn around right away, right? But see there, the reason why nobody <laughs> commits to some cost fallacy because there's certainty. You know that if you finish the walk, you're wasting your time. But I think so many situations where people commit this on cost fallacies when it isn't certain yet. You've already dumped a minute and a half into question 17. And, you know, if I tell you for certain, no, 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 this question is foreclosed to you, no matter how much time you spend, you're not going to get this point. Well, then every single person, easy decision, right? You just move on to question 18. Problem is people don't know that, right? And in this state of uncertainty, you're thinking to yourself, well, I've already spent a minute and a half. Maybe all it takes is another 30 seconds and I'll figure this out. Maybe all it takes is another 40 seconds, right? That kind of thinking is looped, right? Because <laughs> another 30 seconds goes by. You're thinking, well, now I've spent two minutes. Maybe all it takes is another 30 seconds and I'll get this question right. Which is why I think it goes back to making sure you construct for yourself an exit strategy on round one for these questions. Just tell yourself, like, I get X amount of time, whatever X might be. Once that time hits, you just got to move on, right? That's it. Like, you just got to move on. We're hoping to analyze the data that we have with student results, but to be able to, so that I can speak more precisely about this, but I have a hunch that the best indicator of whether or not you're going to get a question right, and when I said indicator, I meant to say predictor, of whether or not a student's going to get a question right is how much time they spend. I have a hunch that if a student spends over a certain amount of time on a question, their odds of getting a question right drops precipitously. So I don't know if my hypothesis is true. Hopefully the data will reveal it. And I'm sure even if it is true, that you know amount of time is different depending on what students. For some students, it might be like 45 seconds. For some students, it might be a minute 30. But I think that data will be kind of useful if for no other reason than to just really drive home the point. Like, look at this data. This is your data, right? Like, look at the questions on which you spent more than 90 seconds. Do you see your odds of getting those questions <laughs> right? It's below 10%, right? Think about what else you could be doing with that time, right? And the answer is getting other questions right. You know, questions that maybe you didn't even get a chance to get to, or maybe questions that you could have spent a second round on, right, to improve your odds. But anyway, you know, we're kind of doing the data analysis there and hopefully it'll yield some results. 
I like your hunch and I, I'd be curious. I can't wait until you get it. I, I think you're right. I, the only thing I would say is like maybe I, th- I think it could also vary a little bit depending on the question type. I mean, maybe there are some question types or depending on where it is in an LR section. If it's question number 18, it's probably going to take me uh, proportionally longer than it would. Yeah, question yeah, number for sure. Eight. But I think that's baked into what you're saying. But yeah, just overall, the longer you put in accounting for question difficulty and whatever, then yeah, you are far less likely to get it. <laughs> yeah, me too. I wonder what we can do with it. I mean, hopefully something useful, something actionable can come out of it for students to adjust their prep. There are a certain group of people that once you get into the idea of it, right? Like, okay, maybe I should skip, but it's like, I'm afraid to. Sometimes it's a little sliver of just like, if I'm questioning whether I should skip, then maybe I should. And I, it wasn't everything, but that was one thing that I found. It was a little phrase that I found helpful. If I found myself wondering if I should skip, then I should probably skip because oftentimes we know what to do. We just don't do what we know. And I found that that could be helpful. So I've seen a post on the discussion forums that you wrote about the importance of sleep. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. On the other one hand, it seems like kind of obvious, but on the other hand, (laughs) I think how powerful it is, is actually kind of subtle. What did you mean when you said it's really important to get enough sleep? Yeah, the students that are listening to me, my current students that are hearing this, probably some of them might be rolling their eyes, but I think a lot of them <laughs> are glad that they took my advice because I preach it so much. I feel like I might as well just say I teach sleep, but it is that important because, look, I mean, we're doing such higher order thinking. I mean, if you think about it, like right. all the work we're doing, like it's very, very deep work, very deep thinking. And so your brain just can't gives the stuff the energy that it deserves. If you don't get enough sleep, you'd be surprised at the number of students that just don't do it and they compromise on sleep. And I think it's interesting. It kind of goes back to what I was saying about the psychology of an LSAT student. If you're studying for the LSAT, you want to go to law school, you're ambitious, you're hardworking, you're driven, all admirable qualities. But I think a lot of times we think, well, okay, uh, I want to do everything I can. Well, that might mean, oh, I'm going to, you know what? I could sleep afterwards. I'm going to cut out on sleeping. The sad thing is you're cutting into the bone on some really important stuff because your ability to think clearly gets compromised. Right now I'm reading a great book called Why We Sleep. And which you might be familiar with. Yeah. Like I used to recommend, I recommend both of these. I recommend Power Sleep, which was written back in the day, which is really good. But Why We Sleep is sort of like the newer version. And that one's also available on audiobook. And that one, this professor at the Berkeley Sleep Labs, he's the one that writes it, Matthew Walker. Yeah. And he, he actually teaches a very popular course on sleep at Berkeley, if you're a Berkeley student who's listening to this. But he makes all these points. Your ability to think properly, right, like just drops dramatically. Even there have been studies that show weight gain because people are just more likely to grab whatever to give them energy. I think there's also defining sleep because people think, oh, it's not about like enough right, sleep to get by. Like people think, okay, five hours, six hours, I can get by. Yeah, I can get by on five or six hours, but five or six hours, I'll get by, I'll get through the day, but I'm not going to function very well. I'm probably not going to be as happy as I could be or function as high. The number varies to people, but I would say generally, right, you don't want to get by. You want to be able to perform at peak. I would say for me, it's at least eight hours. I think for most people, it's at least eight hours. But the general idea is when you get up, you have your alarm clock as a backup, but you don't need to rely on your alarm clock. If you don't need to rely on your alarm clock, if like you get up naturally beforehand 
And it's not because light's coming in, you know, your curtains are down, you know, you just, you naturally get up because you've had enough sleep. That's when you're good. And for me and for most people, I'd say that's at least eight hours. The other point I want to make is just a quick anecdote that I think your students might appreciate. We talked about age and sleep and everything. When I was a high school student, just like the LSAT, I took the SAT three times. And yeah, the SAT and the LSAT are different tests, but they're both standardized tests where time is a function, require this intense critical thinking. And I'll tell you, just this is what I always tell my students. Yes, it was the SAT, but here's the thing. I was guilty of the things that I don't do today that I tell my students not to do. I was that student. I was like, I'm going to get this top score. I'm going to go to college. So I did everything I could. And the night before, instead of taking it easy, instead of getting enough sleep, I stayed up until like 2 or 3 a.m. Because I'm like, maybe there's one other thing I could look at. Maybe there's one other thing. And it exhausted me. And then when I go to take the exam... I scored well, but it was nothing near where I wanted or where my PTs were when I was taking when I was studying for the SAT. So I think the first time I got a good score, but it wasn't anywhere near where I wanted. I kept wondering, what's wrong with me? Why is this not happening? Took it a second time. Same thing. Got the same results. It was good, but it was nowhere near where I was targeting or anything like that. Now, what I didn't realize is that this this workaholic in me was not allowing me to get the proper sleep to perform. Well, Third time, by pure accident, I was like, at this point, I don't think my score is going to change. I was pretty demoralized. I'd signed up for it. And this was the last time you could take it to apply to college, have it still be counting. So I had forgotten I signed up for it. And I remember thinking, ah, nothing's going to change. Fine. You know, whatever. I'll go, but who cares? And at this point, I was detached. So I did the exact opposite. I think I actually probably did watch a funny movie. I got more than enough sleep. I got sleep that week. I got eight plus hours at night. Didn't need the alarm clock. All because I was like, ah, nothing I do is going to make a difference. Well, you know what? The sleep made a difference because my score skyrocketed. I scored in the 98th, 99th percentile. And here's the thing. The only difference, I didn't study at all between the second and last take. And the only difference was the sleep. There was no extra studying, didn't study at all. At that point, I had given up. The only difference was I took care of myself and I allowed myself to get enough sleep accidentally, I suppose, right? But then that allowed me to perform at a peak level where I could think clearly. And I always remember that. And I always tell my students that. And my students have, on some level, the ones that don't get enough sleep, as soon as they start trying it, they notice a world of difference. But just across the board, the biggest question I get, people talk about, oh, what can I do to increase my speed? Totally fair, right? This is a time <laughs> Yes. Totally yes. fair. But as you may agree, JY, it's not as simple as speed. I would argue it's more about having efficient and effective techniques. And it's more about being efficient and effective. But yeah. if you put that aside, though, in terms of pure speed, I think it's fair to say when you don't get enough sleep, your processing speed drops dramatically. Yeah. I know yeah. I've seen it. I preach this. I try to do it every day. I'm not, at this point, I'm just teaching the LSAT, but I think it's vital to just getting the most out of your day. But there are days where it happens that I just don't get enough sleep. And yeah. I feel like my IQ just drops. And yeah. you, you sounds like you can relate to it. I bet everyone oh, out totally. there can relate to it. But the sheer level, like, you think about the minutiae we get into, like this, the abstract thinking that's involved and it doing a certain amount of time. You are really putting yourself at a disadvantage <laughs> if you don't get enough sleep. And it's not just about sleeping before the exam or the PTs, but you want to consistently get that sleep so that way you're not like at a sleep deficit when you go to take the exam or PT. And also that you can study effectively, right? It's not just like, I want to do it the day before PT or the day of the exam. I'm not going to be able to get the most out of my studies if I want to sit down and study for a few hours 
you know, during a certain day of the week. If I don't sleep the night before, I'm not going to be effective. Yeah. No, I think it's super important. I remember Matthew Walker talking about one study that tested subjects' performance on a series of cognitive tasks when the subjects had been deprived of sleep. And the results show that it was comparable to them having, you know, had like two or three drinks, right? So like, obviously, you know, for something as demanding as LSAT, you don't want to be taking the LSAT drug. <laughs> as a general rule, I'm sure somebody out there can get away with it. But also, I feel like it's just more obvious that sleep is important the older I get. So this is probably especially true for some of the students out there who are, you know, not K through JD, right? Like all-nighters used to be a thing that I could do in college and maybe to some extent in law school, but now it's straight up impossible. So definitely age has a powerful effect on amplifying the deficiencies of not getting enough sleep. So tell me how, like, if I have trouble falling asleep, like, what do I do? I agree with what you said about age. It certainly affects everyone. I can attest to that. Like at all ages, I could notice a difference, but it disproportionately affects us as we get older. My non-traditional students are the ones who fight me the least on this because they're like, yeah, I know. I get it. It's not like it <laughs> yes. was when I was in high school and in college yeah. or high school. But yeah, the, the practical things we could do, I realize it's not easy. We want to do it, but it's like, how do I get to sleep? And so a few things, I mean, one, and this is big, we're in this digital age. We're all on our devices. Please Put your device away. If you have to have it on, you put it in dark mode. I'll confess, sometimes I've got my iPad next to me or my device and I'll like fall asleep to a certain audiobook or a certain podcast that it just it lends itself to just, you know, slower, more monotonous voices that are conducive to that. But I don't have the display on. I don't have that bright light on. So if you have a device near you, just make sure that light's off. Try even to like stop using the, your device. And I know this is going to sound like a really hard thing to do, but try to stop using it at least an hour, if not two hours before bed, because that bright light really does, Matthew Walker explains the science better, and I'm sure you do better than me, but like, you know, that really does sort of trigger something in our brain to think, oh, light, we're going to be awake. And it makes it so much harder to go to sleep. I mean, I, I personally keep my phone on dark mode all the time now. If you don't want to do that, fine, but you could at least do that beforehand. Even being on the computer, being on the internet, you know, be careful about that. I, I have a lot of students who... They're like, well, I wanted to go to sleep, but I just found myself doing a Google search and then I'm surfing the net all night. And it's very, you know, it's like we go to search one thing and then all of a sudden we're searching five or 10 different things two hours later. Right. And we don't even remember what we were originally looking for. We never got the chance to. But please be very careful about your devices. They can be really a, a trap to lure you in. They, they serve a purpose, but be very careful about them around bedtime. I think the term is sleep hygiene. Uh, you want to <laughs> yes, start yes. to cultivate a routine, a habit around sleep, right? Which, you know, presumes that you even elevate the importance of sleep, which I think is probably the first problem. You can sacrifice other things, don't sacrifice sleep, right? You have to make time for sleep. So once you realize that, then it's about, you know, developing good routines, right? Around bedtime, light especially, like that's probably the biggest culprit is just artificial light from your computer, from your smartphone, from wherever that signals to your brain that it's still daytime, that it's not time to wind down. But yeah, sleeping was something that was very difficult for me until I guess for like five or six years now, I've been pretty good about it. Prior to that, I think it was mostly because I had a hard time falling asleep, mostly I think because I just had terrible, terrible sleep hygiene. But now every night the routine is the same, right? Lights out at least an hour before falling asleep and I just read. I read on a Kindle, but... <laughs> 
the light setting is very low on the Kindle and I put it in the flip mode where the background is dark and only the words are lit. So yeah, sleep hygiene and routine, super important. I was never a natural reader, read for the LSAT, read for school, but mm -hmm. I've fallen in love with reading again. Maybe it's COVID. I don't know what it is or just preaching this <laughs> to my students. I would start if I take an actual book because for the same, I literally got into it because I was like, well, this will help me fall asleep because it is what it is. It forces you to focus, but then it's just conducive to sleep. I'll often tell students, if you're going to go the, the Kindle route, totally cool. Just like JY says, like, uh, you know, watch that light, you know, do the reversal thing, but I'll force myself to get actual books. And yeah, like that'll do it. It's the more boring, the better. I mean, that, that often can do it too. But even if it's not like it's helped me both fall in love with reading, but it also helps me get to sleep. Right. For sure. Okay. So maybe last question I'll ask is what advice you have for students the day before the test and the day of the test. And I wonder if, you know, the advice that you've been giving has changed much owing to the remote proctoring. Oh yeah. Good point. In some ways it's pretty much the same. I mean, yeah, granted it's a different platform, but the advice I give hasn't really changed. I mean, I always say the day before you want to take it easy, I certainly do not recommend a PT the day before the exam. I, mm -hmm. You know, if you want to take one two days before the exam, okay, right? Because that gives you a day to just sort of decompress. But it, it, it's almost like running a marathon. It's like sort of a mental or a reading marathon. So you need a day afterwards to get back. I even say maybe two days before. Definitely don't do it the day before. Maybe if it's like a few days before, make that your last one. But certainly don't do it the last day. I, I always say the day before should be light. Look at your, you know, we talked about before, I recommend a review sheet. It should be primarily based on your review sheet. Look at your review sheet. You know, the, the key things that you want to remind yourself of to do have that guide you're studying. If you want to do some basic practice of things or some basic problem sets, okay. I really don't recommend that you take a PT for all those reasons. But again, problem sets, making sure everything's ready, making sure your space is ready. I know that sounds really basic, but if you, a lot of times people are looking for something to do and that can be a little dangerous because then <laughs> they might put in too much time into something. They, they might just, you know, invest into that and then get into it and then wear themselves out the day before the test. So even just basic things, make sure your setup is proper, make sure your internet's working fine, make sure you talk to all the people you live with, or whether it's family or friends or roommates, and just saying, hey, don't disturb me, you know, I got this exam. Plan out your meal. Even like, I mean, depending on when you're going to take it, one of the blessings of the Flex is you can take it when you want to take it. At least my domestic students, if they want it at, say, 11 a.m., they'll usually get it around that time, maybe in a half an hour earlier or after. But you can have the time you want. But so like, you know, Maybe plan your food. If you're going to have it in the morning, maybe make your breakfast the night before. Have everything prepared. Have everything you're going to wear and everything ready. That way you're not scrambling around earlier in the day. The bottom line is getting everything ready. And if you're going to do work, keep it light. Do it based on your review sheet. Things that you just know, like if usually if it's on your review sheet, it's stuff that it's like, okay, this is something I need to remember to do. So that's good to kind of have at the fore of your mind by looking at it the day before. Also, and this is super important, you don't want to overstudy, like I was saying before, you've done the long-term studying and you don't want to hurt yourself by driving yourself nuts or whatever. So one of the things I recommend is have a cutoff time. You know, if you live with someone, whether it's, right. uh, you know, a, a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a family member, whatever, or even just someone you don't live with, just tell them, hey, listen, make sure at five o'clock I stop because, you know, I might, like, yeah, I know better, but I might just try to keep studying and then I might just wear myself out. Just have a time when you're going to stop, have someone hold you to it, have a nice dinner. And this is going to sound really silly, but 
watch a funny movie or watch something to get your mind off it. Like I, I'll tell you without any shame, every night before I took the exam, I'd watch Napoleon Dynamite. And the reason is because it makes me laugh and whatever, whatever movie makes you laugh. But right, this is so serious, you know, and we, we got all this anxiety, we, these, yeah. you know, this level of anxiety, we're feeling, but it helps you release. And I remember just being sort of like, oh my God, oh my God, all right, I got to stop. And then I put on Napoleon Dynamite. And then within like the first few minutes, I just found myself laughing and just changing my state of mind. And so it gets you into this state where you're not so attached to the outcome. So I, honestly, one of the best things to do, watch a funny movie, have a good dinner, take care of yourself. And you're in a good place tomorrow, the next day, where you're not clinging to the outcome. You want the outcome. You're going to do everything you can that you've been practicing, but you want it. You don't need it. I think it's really, really good advice. And thanks so much for sharing. Uh, thanks so much for speaking with me today on the podcast. So if students want to find you, Jimmy, how big is your internet footprint? Where can they, do you have a TikTok? Sure. <laughs> do they, where can they uh, find you? Not, not quite on TikTok yet, but I'm on Twitter. But then the best place to get me, is just go to my website, jdlsat.com. That's jdlsat.com. It's pretty cool when your yeah. initials like mine, Jimmy Darug go along with JD Juris Doctorate. So <laughs> nice. JDLSAT.com. And I also have a podcast called LSAT Habits. Oh, cool. We'll link to those in the show notes. Awesome. Well, th thank you. Thank you. Hi, everyone. It's JY again. Thanks for listening. I hope you got some good advice that you can implement in your own studies. If you are prepping for the LSAT, applying to law school, studying for your law school exams, or studying for the bar, come visit us at sevensage.com. We can help. That's it for this episode. Take care of yourself and see you next time.